There's no such thing as a brontosaurus. <laughs> <laughs> there really, that actually is true. That scientists have, that there is no such thing. It's, I think it's like an apatosaurus or something. Welcome to The Mocking Cast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. At you, all three reunited. I am so happy to see uh, RJ, your smiling face, through the computer screen. We've missed you. RJ, are you going to sing it? Wait, sing what? United and it feels so good. I was like, when is RJ going to kick in with the song? Well, we had a a little computer glitch there for a second. I didn't hear what you said. I would have probably. So I was saved by by my internet connection. Well, do you have anything but, to? We, we've missed you. So, what do you have to report? Any, 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 anything to share? What do I have to report? I'm 43 years old. Had my birthday. <laughs> got my, uh, got my 14 year old son confirmed. I haven't seen Sarah in a while, so her hair is longer than it used to be. She's enjoy, mm-hmm. enjoying college ministry. I'm sure that yeah. a, <laughs> a fluorescent a dye ring. job is in the near future and a nose ring. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I mean, the sauna and the flood have returned to Houston. You know, we had a little rain the other day that hap- that that uh, you know flooded out two thousand cars. No big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. just what happens? Just an average uh, average Tuesday in Houston. <laughs> so. Oh my goodness! Really? Yeah. Really? Really? What do you yeah, think really. of the fact that people are referring to Aaron as a poor man's R.J. Heyman? Really? Aaron Zimmerman well, is a poor I man's man. I started a hashtag. I started a hashtag on Twitter. So. <laughs> I don't know. It's been uh yeah, I've missed you guys. It's it's wonderful to be back. I will say that. And uh I know Aaron did a wonderful job in my my set. I, I'm just keeping the seat warm for him, let's be honest. Oh shush. But uh but it's good to be back. <laughs> I'm so glad to be back with you guys and we're going to we got a lot to talk about today. Uh and RJ, I can't wait to hear uh your insights on these things as well as yours, Sarah. We have um the first thing up is uh Soraya Roberts wrote something fascinating for Medium that a bunch of people sent me. Uh, called when did pop culture become homework when did pop culture become homework she writes i didn't do my homework last weekend here was the assignment beyonce's homecoming a concert movie with a live album tie-in which i knew i was supposed to watch not just as a critic but as a human being but i didn't and she goes on to say pop culture right now has become a rolling curriculum for the general populace which determines whether you make the grade as an informed citizen or not I'm not saying there are a bunch of professors at lecterns telling us to watch Game of Thrones, but there are a bunch of networks and streaming services that are doing that, and viewers and critics following suit constantly telling us what we have to watch or must listen to or should read. Essentializing any form of art limits it, Soraya uh, Roberts writes, setting parameters on not only what we are supposed to receive, but how. But this increasingly moralistic approach to culture, quote, robs us of what is messy and tense and chaotic and extrajudicial about art. Now, instead of approaching everything with a sense of curiosity, we approach with a set of guidelines. 
Creating art to dominate this discursive landscape turns that art into a chore. In other words, cultural homework. This is where people start saying things like, do I have to watch Captain Marvel? And feeling a lot of pressure right now to read Sally Rooney. This kind of coercion has been known to cause an extreme side effect, ding, 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 reactance, a psychological phenomenon in which a person who feels their freedom being constricted adopts a combative stance, a combative stance turning a piece of art we might otherwise be neutral about into an object of derision. The Guardian's Oliver Berkman, who we love, called it cultural cantankerousness, talking about how people try to balance feeling included and feeling distinct within a social group. So pop culture as homework. Did this ring any bells for you guys? What, what, what are you with this article? So many bells. The last thing you said was a total like Harry Potter moment for me. Cause you know, I was in seminary at a place that thinks it looks like Harry Potter. I don't even know what that means, but everyone would like use Harry Potter references. They're like, I'm in the house of Brontosaurus or whatever. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I was always just like, there's no such thing as a Brontosaurus. <laughs> They really, that actually is true. That scientists have, that there is no such thing. It's, I think it's like an apatosaurus or something. But is no, it in Harry Potter? Like, are nope. we sure? It's a house, a house Gryffindor, Gryffindor, Ravenclaw, Hufflepuff, and Slytherin. Slytherin. So How I'm dare you like, transgress? Hufflepuff. I know. I just was always like What's a little, I, because everyone said you have to, like, you're an Episcopal seminarian, like, you have to know Harry Potter. I was always like, I'm not reading that. You know what I mean? I had very sort of aggressive. And I tend to, I do, I actually tend to do that about a lot of pop culture things. So like um, Game of Thrones, um, I've never watched Game of Thrones, but I mean, there are things like definitely Beyonce stuff. Like I uh, am always surprised when people like aren't up on it and I'm married to someone who's never up on it, but I'm always like, like I picked our kid up from school a couple of weeks ago and I walked in and they had these like yellow bags with like stuff I don't know it was like stuff in them free toys or something and the teacher was like oh it's lemonade day and in my brain I was like whoa I didn't know there's so many Beyonce fans in the school but they meant like real lemonade and I came home and told my husband and he had no idea what I was talking about so you know I mean I I definitely resonated with this like burden of the things we should know about and also that like greater the law the greater the trespass like you tell me I have to know about it and I'm gonna like aggress I'm gonna make you feel bad for knowing about it like there's a certain type of person that then like doubles down and tries to be up on absolutely everything and drives himself crazy and then there's a certain type of person who says I will watch everything but that because yep, yeah. I feel like it, I'm being graded and that it's an obligation. And once it becomes, I, I look to yeah. art, uh, pop culture in order to escape my obligations and to feel some sense of, tra- uh, you know, transporting uh, effect out of escapist uh uh, life uh, of the, the demands of life and then now that they when they follow me into that arena you just re- are resentful but uh, what about you rj well i was thinking about sarah and um <laughs> it's i don't know you also are constantly posting books you're reading and it makes me feel very judged i'm like gosh sarah condon reads so much do you just read all the time sarah is that kind of what you do to unwind and and is that your thing yeah, I read it would a make lot. sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm like, man, Sarah Connor is reading the books, so I don't know if I'm feeling the I'm pop not, culture. Though. Oh my god, I feel bad that you feel bad. Like that sucks. Well, you shouldn't. I mean, it's I, you know, it's sort of part and parcel of being R.J. Heyman, so it's not your fault. <laughs> but um, <laughs> a poor a poor man's uh, Aaron Zimmerman, or it's Aaron. part exactly a poor man's <laughs> exactly. Aaron Zimmerman. 
Um, but no, it made me think of my wife who hates Rotten Tomatoes, you know, cause she's like, I don't want a website to tell me how I'm supposed to feel about a movie. I just want to watch the movie. And of course my retort is always like, well, but why do we want to waste two hours watching something that's terrible? But then I also realized like my hit rate on rot- movies that are highly rated by Rotten Tomatoes, like oftentimes I don't like those either. And so she's very good about just watching what she wants to watch. I probably feel a little more of the tug of the need to self-justify, um, and yet the other reality is I just don't have much time for pop culture right now. And usually when I'm talking to groups of younger people, now that I'm in my mid-40s, I'm always like double-checking my cultural references. Like I was talking to a bunch of high schoolers and I was like, orange mocha frappuccino, you know, um, which is a Zoolander reference. And they looked at me and they just go, that sounds right. gross. Like what? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I'm really old. Um so yeah, I, I like the pop culture, but I'm sort of, I'm off the train a little bit because I just feel so far behind. Like, thank God I have middle schoolers because I tell them to DJ. I'm like, let's listen to your Spotify. I'm like, this is really good. Like, yeah, no, this came out like two years ago. I mean, RJ, <laughs> how, how does this make you feel? The, the Game Boy came out 30 years ago. That's I remember in middle school. It was like the thing. So I would have been this week. Yeah. What, thirteen years old? Like at seventh yeah, eighth grader, probably like Christmas of my eighth grade year. It oh was like gosh. the thing to have. I did I have one? Maybe later. Not right off the bat, but yeah, I'm starting to feel old, man. But it, it is also like a mm. Pop culture, you know, one of the things in that that you know we talk about, and I think a lot of times on this podcast, but also in the seculosity framework, is that a lot of these things have become uh, increasingly moralistic, and uh, you know, just as you know, comedy has become more preachy, um, so has a lot of this stuff. And I feel like when something is billed to me as culturally important, I want to run in the opposite direction. And my 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 thing is always like Black Panther. I was told so many times I had to watch it. And so I had, I, by that, I, I, I still wanted to watch it because I'm a fan of the comics. But um, I didn't watch it until it was on Netflix. And then I watched it and I saw, this is amazing. And woe to me that I didn't watch it beforehand, but I felt it was becoming this litmus test of whether or not I was a uh, sort of a woke on the train or not. Uh, and that was uh, deeply alienating. And I, I think it's also sad for the people who put all the time in and the joy into making that when it becomes assigned. Uh, this is just how the human heart works, unfortunately. That was like the Hotel Rwanda phenomenon, you know, back in the day when you still got DVDs through the mail with Netflix. They said that Hotel Rwanda was the single video that people held on to longer than any other because they're like, I know I should watch this. What? But I That's really crazy, don't RJ. want Yeah, they would ha- people would have it at their house for like 30 weeks, you know, yeah. because they, it would just sit on their coffee table and be like, I know I need to watch this. I really don't want no to. No one actually, I mean, we want to think of ourselves as the type of oh person who has seen Hotel Rwanda and loves Hotel Rwanda is telling everyone about Hotel Rwanda but at the end of the day when we're really tired we just want to watch like you know reruns of Seinfeld or Friends yeah. and having seen Hotel Bravo. Rwanda it was Bravo. great and I, and I will never watch it again you right. know there are certain movies you're like that was really good Schindler's List is on that was on that list. list yeah 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 totally yeah. agree well Sp- Berkman weighs in at the end of that from The Guardian and he also weighed in with another piece this week which is uh, I love the title of it let's face it we all judge each other's relationships. This is in The Guardian. He says, No one wants to today be found guilty of the modern sin 
of capital Judge J judging other people's relationships, something we're reminded in article after article that we definitely shouldn't do. The notion that the private lives of others are none of our business, though it would have baffled people at most points in history, is unquestionable in ordinary context today. The thought that I might harbor an opinion about your decision to have or not have kids, the age difference in your relationship, or your open marriage seems faintly scandalous. Which is weird because the truth is that everyone's judging everyone else's relationships all the time. What we urgently seek to know, as a blog post from the School of Life, which is a Alan de Botton's website puts it is are other people in as much trouble as we are nobody with the slightest insecurity or even curiosity can possibly regard others private lives as none of their business since they're far too valuable a trove of data about how people cope with the challenges of being alive and this speculation naturally takes the form of judging because as the essayist Tim Kreider has written, and former Mockingbird uh, speaker, has, we anxiously size up how everyone else's decisions have worked out to reassure ourselves that our own are vindicated, that we are in some sense winning. At the core of the urge to judge, this is Berkman again, is something universal and very human. The desire to get a handle on how we're doing in a world where confusion far outweighs clarity. To the extent that you're able, you're better off on hooking your happiness from external judgments rather than spending your days struggling to reassure yourself that others are judging you completely positively. Because unless they happen to have made exactly the same life choices as you, they almost certainly aren't doing so. Boom. I feel like when I read this, I avoided that last part. Now I'm like stuck in that. Um, mm. That's heavy. You mean you think it, you, basically that other people are inevitably uh, judging your yeah, own choices? I mean, cause we, yeah, breathing, I mean, because we, yeah, you're breathing, you're judging. If you're breathing, no, you're, t no, and I know that, but there's also this thing, I mean, especially because like we live in a neighborhood where like most mothers don't work. And so there's always like a bit of awkwardness and conversation around like, the fact that I do and I don't know I mean there's like I'm just like oh gosh I guess sometimes maybe they talk about that when I'm not around <laughs> shit <laughs> you better believe they do <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no question she looks so tired today did you see her um, there's no way she can be paying attention to those kids I enough know, to I know it's like and these are like lovely people but lovely people judge other lovely people right that is the reality of of who we are it does strike me it's the same way we talk about like when people die we're always like well how did they die you know what i mean because it's always like how can i avoid death you know or like, how is it their fault somehow that they right that they... exactly like what did they do wrong to deserve this you know <laughs> i mean it's a very like similar Thing. But I, I, I think I think it's also why and Dave, you and I've talked about this before when you have a circle of good friends, like when you're young parent and you've got like a group of friends who are in that kind of same boat as you when one of those couples gets divorced. It's like, you know, because there's this element of like, oh, my God, like as much as you want to define yourselves over and against all of these couples and you probably like if you're anything like us have like these like late night conversations in the kitchen where there's like a glass of, you know, Chardonnay and you're like, well, you know, they don't seem to have it together like we do. <laughs> like suddenly um, you see them get divorced and you face that reality that actually you're very similar. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Um, yeah. And it's terrifying. And I love... Um his honesty, the rawness with which he writes, you know, the 
because he, he's totally right. You know, is everyone struggling as much as I am? Is, am I am I winning? How am I doing? How am I comparing? Mm, uh, looking around, judging. How can I justify my existence? Um, it's just to, it's just a hundred percent true. And uh, I don't know. I guess in those moments when we find that maybe for like a second we're not doing that, you know, and we're just uh, actually engaged in our life on a day to day basis. Is 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 we know we're actually doing okay, but they're they're few and far between. Yeah, but this desire for a verdict is so deeply ingrained and the sort of uh, constant uh, refrain to just stop judging other people, it's, it, it's, it doesn't work. I mean, I wish it did, and, and even Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, but the, the, the gospel answer to that law of thou shalt not judge is really that um, someone has been judged in your place, and that's why this 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 uh, this when you hear people sort of disparage substitutionary atonement, you want to say, well, this is the pastoral emphasis of it because everyone is looking for a judgment and we, we, um, everyone is looking for a verdict. I wish they weren't. It would be nice if they weren't at uh, this. Uh, and you know, the, this is all, um, I, I can't help but think about it. And of course I'm thinking about it in terms of, uh, the book that that I wrote, and that this sense of enoughness, we look to other people's relationships to strengthen, to bolster, or somehow tear down our own enoughness. So, if we're feeling terrible about ourselves, we'll look at someone's marriage and say, "Oh, they have, they're so happy and they're so great. Why can't you be more like her or him?" And uh, or if we feel if, if if we're sort of differently inclined, then we use them to sort of tear them down to feel better about ourselves. But this jockeying for self-justification, I, I, in a lot of the interviews, have been asked about the book is like, why are you not talking about idolatry? Rather, um, you're talking about enoughness. I said, well, this book is not, uh, I'm interested in self-justification, not worship. They're, they're slightly different. They're, they're, mm. There's a lot of resonance, but self-justification is at the heart of what I consider to be the religious impulse rather than simply worship, or at least that's the angle this is taking. And Sarah, I mean, one of the things we've also, all, the three of us have talked about is that among parents, you know, uh, we judge the hell out of each other's parenting. The second totally. the door closes on the play date, that is where you're going. And the, the, the seculosity of parenting doesn't exist among our children be competing. It exists among parents and the, the judgments of other parents that we're afraid of. And that's where the jockeying and the exhaustion and the resentment and uh, the sadness and loneliness uh, and rage kind of plays in. So, Also, like, no one wins. I think that's really important to say with judgment is that even when you feel like the victor, like even when you you've determined that maybe you've determined that there's this couple that you know and they're headed towards divorce. Like, um, there's a there's a couple that I sort of know peripherally in the community and, like, they are, like, uh, real unpleasant people to be around, to be honest with you. And I've seen them in several settings and meetings and stuff. And anyway, I found out recently that they were getting divorced. And I was like, wow, I just feel worse for them now. You know what I mean? Like, there's not really any sense. Like, for a long time, there was like, oh, they. I bet they're horrible to each other. And then you're like, oh, my God, they are horrible to each other. Like, it doesn't make you feel any better, no, you know? No, It's like, there, no one, I mean, judgment is an incredibly human impulse. And um, so I don't want to say, like, I, yeah, I mean, you can't tell people not to judge. But, but I do think there's a little bit, I mean, RJ, you were saying, like, there are these moments when you realize you're not doing it. And it's... I think sometimes you get more of those moments if you realize just how it doesn't 
help. Like it doesn't make you feel better. It doesn't make them feel better, certainly. And when it when their lives fall apart or your life falls apart, it hasn't helped, right? No one's won. Yeah, and the, and the least judgmental people we we come across are those who've survived some kind of terrible tragedy or self-inflicted yep. disaster. Yeah. And we are sort of unburdened, and you know, the Holy Spirit I think is involved in this. But we we all of a sudden can we find ourselves lo- loving rather than judging those whose um, blind spots look a lot like ours, even totally. though in, and in the form, but, but before that we tend to judge those people most harshly who resemble our blind spots, but it's this kind of death and resurrection paradigm that I wish mm-hmm. again, weren't true, but seems to be of great hope for people who feel um, overwhelmed and oppressed by judgments, both other people's and their own. Mm-hmm. Um, Plus, I like this article because it introduced me to the Unimoon, which I had not heard of before. I thought we right. talked about the Unimoon. Have At we the not very beginning, the apparently, people we who not, get, we have not talked about this, David. People, I put it. We put it in a. We put it in a weekender. Well, I missed Unbelie- it. Okay. I've just never. Heard, that's just unbelievable. Tell everyone like, what just, the Unimoon is. Tell Apparently, apparently, I've ne- like as if this is a real thing. You get married, and then you each go on your honeymoon by yourself after the marriage. Which actually might have sound nice to my wife because she's a fierce introvert, you know. <laughs> but um, I don't think so. I don't you know? think. So. Everyone who That's hears so... it has to stifle. Um, maybe right. everyone so who hears that is like crazy. Uh, it is the craziest thing. Um, and but the last thing I do want to say this too, and we can edit this out if we want to. If you are struggling in your marriage right now, and you're looking at other marriages, being like, "Why aren't we like that?" Go to marriage therapy. Mm-hmm. Like, do it. You know, it'll be the best money you ever spend. And it's not always cheap, but it's money well spent. And, you know, figure yourselves out, figure out relationship, figure out your hot buttons, how to talk to each other, how to avoid conflict, like go to marriage therapy. It's a, it's a good thing. Cause, um, life is hard, man. Marriage is hard. Having kids is hard. Career is hard. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you just need an outside pers- the, the perspective of professional. Mm-hmm. Totally you know? agree. And if you go into marriage mm-hmm. therapy thinking they're going to fix the other person, you're probably the problem. I mean, <laughs> I don't know that from personal experience or anything. But... Sarah, that is going to be a meme now. That is like, I'm going <laughs> yeah, to personally good. make sure that that, become, that becomes a bumper sticker. You are so good looking. Guys, we're going to go from uh, relationships into uh, um, obituaries. There are two very prominent um, Christians that died this week, and uh, both are sort of cast a large shadow. The first is an unbelievably um, tragic uh, case, and we're talking, of course, about Rachel Held Evans, who was the blogger and writer and um, I don't uh, thinker, uh, provocateur, what have you. She was. Uh, she meant a lot to a lot of people, and she has two small children and a loving husband that she left behind because of a massive swelling in her brain. And it's just a, a, a really the kind of the kind of thing that um, the suffering for which you have no tragedy for which it's we can't really put words on. But she died, and um, the the there's she's a controversial figure, and so it's very difficult to take for anyone of a thoughtful Christian to kind of uh, avoid, I don't know, using this time to sort of weigh in, you know, uh, on what they think, sort of, you know, every time you hear it's like, uh, I had a lot of disagreements, but... Um, the Atlantic, I thought, put out a, a, a tribute that captured uh, what is appealing about 
uh, was appealing about Rachel. They said in her third book, Searching for Sunday, she was really looking for a space where it was okay to be broken. And she said this, uh, and a lot of liberal progressive people are afraid of the word sin, she told Emma Green in a 2015 interview. But this is the core of Christianity, Rachel said, the bizarre truth of Christian identity. Her conviction was clearer in the way she held herself in conversation, acknowledging human frailty and failings, including her own, speaking with care and humility, summoning grace for the abandoned. Uh, later on in that article, she says, death is a thing empires worry about, not a thing resurrection people worry about. I guess she, oh, she'd, she'd become a, a... By the term resurrection people, you can tell she'd become an Episcopalian. Um, she says, as long as there's somebody baptizing sinners, breaking the bread, drinking the wine, as long as there's people confessing their sins, healing, walking with one another through suffering, then the church is alive and it's well. The lasting legacy of Evans' writing and of her public life is her unwillingness to cede ownership of Christianity to its traditional conservative male stewards, her unwillingness to give up on Christianity, period. Now, again, uh, she uh, I'll just say this. If you don't know who Rachel Held Evans is, and there's lots of people that don't, you'd be surprised. She uh, was sort of... Um, Grew up in a very uh, Tennessee, I think, even very evangelical upbringing. Uh, went to an evangelical college, and then really rose to prominence um, during that sort of the golden age of blogging. You might say she was extremely uh, pithy, and I think good at um, uh, getting to the heart of certain issues. And uh, she sort of, you know, all every tribute to her talks about she sort of drifted leftward uh, in her. Christianity, and yet, you know, of course, as the feeding frenzy on her death, as everyone wants to, uh, you know, uh, analyze that and maybe lay blame or take credit, or I don't know what to say. I don't, this is a, a thing where I'm uncomfortable to really say much of anything, but uh, Sarah, as someone who writes on the internet and uh, I know has, um, deals with people dying all the time, what, what, where, where, what do you think? Um, I was on the phone the other day. I call. I called the priest, uh, the wife of the priest I grew up with, a woman named Joan, who um, had a huge impact on me. And I hadn't spoken to Joan literally since I was like seventeen to like almost twenty years. And she said, "You know, our group, this Bible group they're part of, has read some Rachel Held Evans, and we think she sounds so much like you." And Sorry, there are certain, you know, there are certain people that define themselves against Rachel or Rachel defined him, you know, herself against them. And I, at certain points, definitely define myself as someone who was not like Rachel. And death is the great equalizer. And you realize that a lot of that stuff actually didn't matter that much. It hit me like a lot harder than I would have expected it to as someone who like, you know, wasn't super into her like it's just you know it's been a it's been a weird thing to be honest with you so um I have been very moved to by I I mean I loved that she called out a lot of these frankly like old white guy you know voices that were like at the top of evangelicalism and they'd have these like pretty public things that you know on Twitter and um that those men have stepped forward and talked about how necessary her voice mm. was. That part was powerful. A couple of thoughts. One was just, you know, even though I work in a church, I think historically, and as I think about myself, I'm probably, I'm, 
sounds weird to say. I'm I'm sort of more interested in um, bringing the gospel to people who've never heard it before, to sort of non-Christians, than I am to preaching it to people who have heard it. But 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 then that's I think that's not right, you know. And and she does. Um, I don't know a lot about her to be totally honest with you. But in reading this article, um, and then I also think about what um, uh, what's his name, Francis Spufford says in unapologetic, how yes, he was ex- Jesus was accepting, but he also didn't shy away from sin and, and sort of taking people to task, and, and he wasn't sort of a relativist, you know, um, and about how, then this article, you know, talking about how um, Rachel Held Evans was all about acceptance, but also about sin, and how those two things are so often, they don't go hand in hand, they seem mutually exclusive, either your right. church of acceptance or your church of sin, and it's like, no, no, right. no, no, no. We have to be both because Jesus is both, and life is both, and sin is the is the bedrock of Christian and human identity, and yet the gospel is acceptance of sinners. Um, and so the need to hold those things together as hard as it as it is, and that you know people fall off the wagon on both sides, mm-hmm. you know, acceptance sin, acceptance sin. Like, am I being too accepting? Am I do, being too easy on sin? I mean, whatever. And and you just got to go back to the Gospels over and over and over again. Like, how did Jesus do it? We're not going to do it that. We're not going to do that well. How did Paul do it? You know, go back to the New Testament. Um, but those are my, those are my two thoughts. Well, gosh, it's, it is definitely hard to talk about someone, a living, breathing human being with two children and, and not uh, already, how can we're talking about ideas as relates to the person. I don't, I don't know how to do it, but I'm grateful. Mm. I have you guys to, as she says, to walk through suffering with, cause it's, uh, it's, it's messy and it's strange. And, um, it, one wonders what what it'll all look like in you know fifteen years or ten years because part of me hears this and I think you know having um, spent you know roughly a long a long time online like what is that f- what is all that online back and forth stuff actually I know it means a lot to some people but I also it, death does put some of it in perspective in a way that is uncomfortable to me given how much energy I've put in. Um, I mean, Dave, you and I talked about that. That was a very real reaction I had to this that was strange and um, probably needs to be edited out of this podcast. But, but you know, as a woman with two small children who spends a lot of time on the internet, yeah. I mean, there was part of me that was like, well, you know, I think about how much time I spent on the internet, the my the first year of my daughter's birth my my literally got carpal tunnel syndrome in my right hand from Mm. my phone you know what I mean and um I mean I I yeah I mean there's the that to to what end is the also sort of the 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 very um the spiritual crisis of knowing that we spent a lot of our time there and to what end. And, and certainly like Rachel's books are incredible and the community she created online for people is amazing. And I do think that's worth something, but I, I also think we're the first generation of people who are having to ask ourselves that question. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a hard question. And it's an important one. So, you know, because all I thought about when I heard that she died was that she's a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And I thought about how much time she probably had to spend on Twitter in arguments with people. I did. And like how much of that time she wasn't able 
to spend with them. And I know that's like something people will say, oh, like she was more than a mother and you're just minimizing her work and everything. But like, I'm guessing those people don't have one-year-olds and three-year-olds at home. Yeah, and you can't you I can't not interpret it through your own where where you're where you're sitting. Yeah, you know, and there's there's yeah. a there's a gut visceral reaction because you're right. We have heard this outpouring of people that, and a surprise people that I you know had no idea were paying attention to her who said mm-hmm. you know this has meant something to me. And I remember she wrote something once, really nice about Mockingbird. And you know I, I feel like, um, uh, yeah, I. Uh, it's 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 actually a lot <laughs> frankly given even just hearing us talk about it um it's a lot easier to talk about this second person for whatever reason maybe it's cuz <laughs> she is so close in age to all of us and we Probably. see ourselves and it's and it's that Tim Kreider thing it's like someone yeah. who is coming coming from your it's easier to judge it's impossible yeah. not to judge someone who looks a lot like you um yeah. and or at least and is doing very similar very work similar right work. and so yeah. this next person yeah. John and doing it better <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a that's a poor man's Aaron Zimmerman speaking. But um, <laughs> the, uh, let's talk about Jean Vanier because he's sort of this uh, Jean Vanier. None of us have done anything like what this guy is doing, this guy. and I hope the Lord does not put this call on my wife. Okay, go, Dave. <laughs> uh, this unbelievable man, a Canadian, uh, who this funny sort of. Uh, almost like from a different world. He almost, he looks a little like Tolkien always in my mind. And he's got, I watched parts of that uh, incredible documentary about a couple of years ago. He was brought up sort of privileged uh, Navy uh, family and kind of, ha- and had this uh, Catholic faith that really, I think he was visiting some asylums and heard the cries of the mentally uh, disabled or, um, people with all sorts of infirmities and had this in, in conversion experience which led him to create this uh, community called L'Arche which is French for the Ark and uh, now there are something like 158 L'Arche communities where um, the uh, people with various um, mental conditions but I think there's a lot of sort of autism and Down syndrome and uh, in in various uh, you know uh, yes, states of of uh, uh, in infirmity, I guess you could say, that they all live together with other people and these transformative, unbelievable communities. Henry Nouwen, the great writer and uh, theologian who uh, has impacted so many people's lives, he uh, was lived in a large community and, and kind of and talks about that as being... Um, uh, his spiritual home and and my my mother-in-law has been very involved in the large community in Washington so I've gotten to hear about it over mm. the years and this man really was from all accounts the real deal and um I'll read to you from Bethany uh, McKinney Fox wrote something for Christianity Today called Jean Vanier made us all more human. Uh, she said, the Catholic theologian understood early on that L'Arche would not be a place of one-sided service and his emphasis on true mutuality in relationships has become one of his most enduring legacies for the church. He recognized that people who are vulnerable, who experience their anguish and pain openly, are at the core of communities. In their vulnerability, they call everyone together. Over time, we all come to discover our own brokenness and fragility, realizing that they are also us. Um, one of the things he would say is that people come to community like L'Arche because they want to help the poor. They stay in community because they realize they are the poor. 
Uh, she quotes Father Greg Boyle, who, you know, who, um, a founder of Homeboy Industries and has written those wonderful books, who describes being deeply influenced by Vanier and Larche in particular, uh, who lived out the understanding that tenderness is the highest form of spiritual maturity. In the final years of his life, Vanier was repeatedly asked the question of whether, of uh, what he would think of being made a saint. Uh, he always dismissed the idea. He explains that he really just wanted to be a friend of Jesus, someone who exemplifies a beautiful life of love and humility and not the pursuit of accolades and worldly success. He also said that anyone who would call for him to be a saint must not know him very well. Now, what an amazing uh, thing and deeply Christian sentiment. I thought I'd read to you, though, uh, to close before we speak about it, uh, he received the Templeton Prize in 2015, and he gave a little some remarks about it. And he said, I want to speak to you of what we've learned in L'Arche and Faith and Light. Uh, As you know, people with intellectual disabilities are not able to assume important roles of power and of efficacy. They're essentially people of the heart. When they meet others, they do not have a hidden agenda for power or for success. Their cry, their fundamental cry, is for a relationship, a meeting heart to heart. It is this meeting that awakens them, opens them up to life, and calls them forth to love in great simplicity, freedom, and openness. When those ingrained in a culture of winning and of individual success really meet them, and enter into friendship with them, something amazing and wonderful happens. They, too, are opened up to love and even to God. They are changed at a very deep level. They are transformed and become more fundamentally human. Let me tell you about Pauline. She came to our community in 1970, hemiplegic, epileptic, one leg and one arm paralyzed, filled with violence and rage. It was not easy to live in one of our small homes with her. Our psychiatrist gave us good insight and advice. Her violence was a cry for friendship. For so long she had been humiliated, seen as hardly human, having no value, handicapped. What was important was that the assistants take time to be with her, listen to her, and show their appreciation for her. Little by little, she evolved and became more peaceful and responded to their love. Her violence disappeared. She didn't particularly like to work in our workshops, but she loved to sing and to dance. When she was quite a bit older, I would go and visit her. Sometimes she would put her good arm on my head and she would say, poor old man. It takes a long, <laughs> <laughs> it takes a long time to move from violence to tenderness. The assistants who saw her initially as a very difficult person began to discover who she was under her violence and under her disabilities. They also began to change. They discovered that for a person, growth was not primarily climbing the ladder of power and success, but of learning to love people as they are. Love, in the words of St. Paul, is to be patient, to serve, to bear all, to believe all, and to hope all. I, um, this is like a weird story to tell, um, I couldn't read this without thinking about my husband, uh, not because he's done any of the things this guy's done, but when we lived in Manhattan and, you know, we didn't really know each other when we got married and I was determined to look like a really good person. Um, I heard that there was a shelter that had formed. So this is like 13 years ago in Manhattan. That was just for transgendered kids. And I was like, we got to go volunteer at the shelter, you know? And my husband is like, and I'm totally expecting my husband to be like, I'm not going to do that. My husband's like, okay, all right, let's do it. You know, so like 
we roll into the shelter and immediately I'm like, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm like, I don't, it was like exactly how I was in CP when I was with folks there. Like, I was like, I don't know how, I can't do this. I'm not like, I'm not called into this. I don't know how to do it. And I remember like turning away from the group to like gather myself to be like, I just don't think I can do this. And then I turned back around and my husband was like in the middle of the kids, like talking to them. And I don't know. I don't know why he just like, he just did it. And I, and I, I say that not because I think, I I think the easy thing when we hear these stories is exactly what I'm so bad at saying French. I just leave off all the consonants at the end. Is it Vanier? Is that, am I saying it right? Okay. I'm terrible at it, but that, that like he wouldn't want to be sainted because he wouldn't want people to think that they can't do this because I do think people can do these things. I just think that like, it's just a matter of being like terrified and unsure of what will happen and stepping into it. And, um, I think that is the, prayer for me as I age that I am able to do more of those things. So maybe it's just because Josh is five years older than me that he was good at the shelter. <laughs> but um, but I do, I think there's, I, I think there's something incredible a, about him saying that, that, that this is like, this is not an, uh, a, a thing that, that you should exclude yourself from being able to do because it's incredible. And I mean, the other thing is being in these communities and we have to be careful not to like romanticize or idealize people who, who have been born with um, this level of challenge, but, but also the way that he just described like how they, they are like people of the heart. Mm. I think there's, there's, there is a, we, we do feel compelled to spend time with these people and to love these people and to know these people because to, to the earlier stuff we talked about, there's a profound lack of judgment. Like they aren't, you know what I mean? In this constant state of like trying to figure out why their marriage is better than everyone else's. Like they would just like to be in relationship, period. And that's really incredible. And I can't, and I promise I won't cry. This is not going to be the episode where Sarah cries the whole episode. But I cannot stop thinking about that ep- that, just that got our clip title. from, no- from exactly. Normie, from the from the movie that we've shown at both of the Mockingbird conferences and the, the young woman with Down syndrome and she's, she's watching the solar eclipse and she's watching it pass over and she doesn't understand what's happening. And she keeps yelling at the sun to not give up. I remember. It's like, you know, I mean, there is, it, it is, it is our greatest, blessing and I think Vanier recognized that the way I think my husband recognized that that we would actually be with these folks you know that we aren't the blessing to them in so many ways but they show us that like there is actually a different way to see the world mm. um, and that there's relief in that way so this week I was sitting for a little while in a group of about a dozen men and women who are caring for loved ones uh, in various stages of Alzheimer's. So it's a support group for caregivers of people with Alzheimer's. So it's spouses, um, maybe it's their parents. And man, um, it was hard to hear and their lives are really brutal. My favorite line from that was this one woman, amazing woman, who's caring for her husband and she's like, yep, we just keep putting one foot in front of the other on the long slog towards death. (laughs) (laughs) And everyone laughed, you know, exactly what she's talking about. I was just like, these people are saints, man. 
these people are saints. Like, mm-hmm. this is the kingdom of God right here, because the openness, the honesty, the vulnerability, the pain, the way they supported one another, it was... And of course, nothing I would ever want for myself in a million years. Right. You know? Right. So it is It is. It is the theology of the cross, you know, what we read about here with um, Vianney and, and, and these communities. Uh, so that's my first thought. The second one was, I remember... When I was finished watching, I'm going to date myself here again, Friday Night Lights, um, mm-hmm. you know, in which the main character starts off as like the head football coach at like the high school program in the state of Texas and then moves on to UT and then loses his job, has to take a job at a, another high school across town, and then eventually ends up at like a nothing high school, kind of in the middle of nowhere, um, football speaking. But he does it because he loves his wife. You know, he sets aside his ego kind of for the, because he loves his his wife. And I remember thinking, watching that, how the life of love is always downwardly mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the opposite of what we want, uh, our, what our ego wants. And so that means two things to me. One is um, to have the courage and the wisdom to accept humiliation when it comes your way, because it may actually be the work of God in your life. Um, and if you are seeking to live a life of love, um, to not be surprised if it's not pretty, you know, and yet is, and yet is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, this is an amazing article. I got to watch that documentary, but just incredible. Like what, what a, what a image of escaping the law of the world. You know, all the things that, that we're told will make us um, important and happy and valuable uh, when it's not true. Like, that's not what a life of joy looks like. What a life of joy looks like is what this man lived. Mm. Um, and so I think that's what most people, it's what they want. Um, but it's hard to get off the hamster wheel. Oh, my it's gosh. Really, really yeah. Hard. I- I just, I think, I mean, I, it makes me think, unless honestly, you're forced to, unless right. you're, unless your husband comes down with dementia, right? <laughs> you know, then it's right. like, oh, I have no choice. Right. Yeah. Or like, or dies. Like I can't, I, or dies. I, I, yeah. I, I think about so much about my grandmother who, you know, was widowed really young with four children and oh my gosh. went back to school and got her, you know, got a degree to begin with. And then, and then went on and got her master's in education and she taught. She taught special education in a very small school in the Mississippi Delta where everyone's on food stamps, everyone's struggling. I mean, you want to talk about the least, the last, the lost, and the lonely. It's kids in special education in the Mississippi Delta. And she retired like three times. Like, Meemaw just kept going back. Mm. You know what I mean? And people would see her and, and, and people would – and people still say to me, it's the highest compliment when I meet somebody and they say, oh, you remind me so much of your grandmother because, you know, it's like – People would say like she's so she's so holy and she's so um, she talks about Jesus so much and she and it's like that you know that's like that's her survival like that's how yeah. she's in this and that's yeah. why she's in this and um, so yeah I mean you no know, RJ I love that it's like no one comes by this easily mm. like and no one comes by this without losing something or giving something up and you know I I I love that idea that like you know. Sometimes God does call us to, and listening to that is 
is hard but worth it. My response really is, is two things is that um we recorded a I recorded a podcast yesterday all about the Beach Boys. Um and I always find that when they talk about people of the heart, Brian Wilson always comes to mind as a person who really does have some uh, maybe not intellectual disability but has had dealt with a real mental illness that has has kind of uh, made him um him unfiltered in a way that he's seeking relationship and the cry of his heart is sort of channeled in everything he does. At least that's what I hear. And how um, it communicates something so true in a world obsessed with uh, headlines and politics and judgments as we talked about. The cry of the heart is, do you love me? And um, uh, I love you. And that is really the truth of what's really going on in life. But also, uh, I think Pope Francis said it all when he said, you know, uh, all we can say about this man is we, we thank God uh, that um, for that he uh, gave uh, this man to us and that for his for his work and also his person. Not that not that we need to all of a sudden all become this man, but the fact that he existed at all and that he came and these communities sprouted up despite, I'm sure, his many limitations and hang-ups is a work of uh, mercy and grace and God, the Holy Spirit in the world, and to which we just say thank you. Mm-hmm. At least that's where where I'm at, and I'm just gonna go put on some Beach Boys and g- kind of uh, think about how uh, how wonderful it is that Jean Vanier lived. And to get everyone to watch, I think it's called Summer in the Forest. Um, it's a documentary all about him that came out only a few years ago. It's fantastic. It actually, came out yet last year. Uh, so I'm grateful that that exists too. So that's uh, more than enough. Guys, I want to say thank you to you too for being on this cast and for uh, being um, so open with your hearts and with your time. Um, and we will talk to you soon. Oh, a uh, good thing to mention to everyone who is subscribed to our Talking Bird feed, the, that podcast, the files from New York City, including Sarah's fantastic um, talk, which will be a little bit better, I think, once the video comes out. But uh, And all of the talks outside of Alfie Cones, which we were, weren't allowed to post. But um, they're all up. And go and listen. And, uh, you know... There's lots, lots, lots Woo-hoo. of food for thought. And uh, this is uh, me signing off. Bye, you guys. Bye, guys. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group, and if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.